Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? This week on EU Confidential. The EU has lost one of its commissioners. Those are the 27 top officials from each member country who shape policy and propose legislation within President Ursula von der Leyen's commission. Maria Gabriel has been in charge of research and innovation within the commission. But in recent days, she resigned her post in Brussels and returned to her home country of Bulgaria, to try and form a new government as its next Prime Minister. Today, we'll explore what this means for Brussels and the developments in Bulgarian politics that led to this decision. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. In just a moment, we'll dive into Gabrielle's resignation with our podcast panel. And later, with the dates of the European Parliament election finally confirmed this week, as June the 6th to June the 9th next year, we'll turn our attention to the European Parliament. We'll introduce you to some of its members and candidates, explaining how the Parliament works and the impact it makes. So stay tuned for that. But first, we're joined by Christian Oliver, Politico's Head of News, and Antoinette Rossi, our cybersecurity reporter and resident Bulgarian. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you. Before we get to Gabrielle herself, Christian, maybe you could bring us up to speed on what's been happening in Bulgarian politics over the last few years. Five elections in two years, I believe. It's been an absolutely wild ride. And it's a really important country if you're going to start to examine rule of law in Europe and the sort of powers that Brussels has. Can it really hold countries to account and really get to grips with what's going on there? The language being used about Bulgaria in the past few years is mafia state, captured state, partial democracy. And that doesn't really seem to be an exaggeration at the moment, that the entire political system um, is in a desperate situation. And one of the key elements, and this is why we have a crisis blowing up at the moment, is prosecutors in Bulgaria. So at the heart of the mafia state is one big problem is that you cannot arrest well you can arrest but then you won't get convictions for the bad guys and this is has been the consistent problem for years and it now seems to be blowing open in a very spectacular way over the past few years a lot of anger in bulgaria has been directed against the role of the chief prosecutor a man called ivan geshev who has been seen as keeping a lid on the whole mafia state he's been seen as very close to the former prime minister boyko borisov the guy who has dominated the country for the past 10 years and indeed he's been seen as borisov's protector so you might remember that when borisov was 
arrested. It actually proved impossible to press charges against him in the end. Barasov's lawyer, Menko Menkov, said the arrest was part of an investigation into alleged extortion. However, prosecutors failed to come up with sufficient evidence to press charges. The sense has been that always there's been quite a tight relationship between Borisov and the prosecutors in Bulgaria. Now, in this utterly wild drama in the past few days, that relationship has gone wrong spectacularly. We have Geshev making very unsubtle hints that Borisov has been trying to kill him. There's been this story about a roadside bomb. He's been warned that you're, fa- you know, do you know where your family are? If you stand on a, you know, you're on a cliff edge in a strong wind. This stuff is kind of crazy mafia drama. The prosecutors who had all been in the same club are now sort of investigating each other and charging each other. So this whole structure that seemed quite solid and unbreakable, something's going on now. So it's a uh, it's a wild ride. So Borisov, as you mentioned, has been a dominant figure in Bulgarian politics for years. Uh, he's a member of the EPP, the centre-right group in the European Parliament, so very well-known figure here in Brussels. But tell us what happened in the latest elections. I mean, there's been a series of elections, but we had elections in April did. We've had, what is it now, our fifth set of elections uh, in the past couple of years. He won. He got first over the line. He got just about 25% of the vote, very close to the the anti-corruption parties who came a sort of narrow second with him. The thing is, he now needs to form a coalition. And that is a very difficult process. The other parties do not want to work with him. The The guys who came second are very interesting. They're this anti-corruption coalition. The thing is, they know that working with Borisov is toxic, that you get into big political problems if you ally yourselves too closely with the Ger party, which is Borisov's party. So we're a total impasse, and it's still very, very hard to see how Bulgaria can form a structural government. It's actually a real kind of failed state situation at the moment where you can't pull anything together. Interesting. So, Antonetta, bringing you in here, so this is where we are in Bulgarian politics, political stalemate now, essentially, after that election. So, bring us up to speed on how this has affected the European Commission, in particular, the Bulgarian Commissioner, Maria Gabriel. Yeah, so Maria Gabriel was called upon by Borisov to essentially come back to Bulgaria and form a government. And at the time, everyone thought, that this was a very clever move by Borisov. I mean, sort of checkmate to the anti-corruption parties because here we present uh, the first, potentially first female prime minister of Bulgaria. She's a young, Western-educated woman. She's one of the leaders of the European Commission and having sat through two commissions now. And so Borisov thought, I've played them with this presentation of Gabriel. But what actually happened is Tuesday night of this week, the anti-corruption alliance refused to back Gabriel. The socialists have refused to back Gabriel. So essentially, no game. She is not going to be able to form a government. And in this time, she's also resigned from her post as commissioner because according to commission rules, if a sitting commissioner becomes too involved in national politics, I mean, it's not possible, essentially, because it can be seen as interference into a democratic country. And last week, 
Gabrielle, one of the first things she did was actually ask for the resignation of this guy, Geshef, the prosecutor general. And that just wasn't going to be okay for a commissioner to have asked for a resignation of the top jurist of a EU member state and then continue as commissioner whilst vying for the post of prime minister. Do you think she kind of played this wrong that last week she involved herself in domestic politics by calling for the resignation of this prosecutor when she was technically still the commissioner? So from that point of view, she was no longer could serve as commissioner effectively because she'd already strayed into this area of domestic politics. I think so. Yeah, I think it might have been a slip up on her part because she wanted to impress this anti-corruption alliance by immediately calling for the resignation of this jurist. And then essentially, I don't know if there's been back channels between her and the commission, or she just realised that what she'd done wasn't going to sit well with the commission president von der Leyen. So she submitted her resignation And she sort of shot herself in the foot, really, because now she's no longer commissioner. She's no longer a possible prime minister. What is Gabrielle facing? I mean, she's just entered an absolute storm of a situation in Bulgaria. And I don't know if I were her, I would probably be regretting it. But presumably she thought she would get the support, which is one reason why maybe she waded into this debate. But do you think there is any hope for her that this proposed appointment of her prime minister will ultimately get over the line in Sofia? I'm not sure. I mean, things are just changing there by the hour. So now that she's effectively not been able to form a government, the mandate goes to the second largest parliamentary group, which is this alliance of anti-corruption parties. And one of their tactics would be to form a minority government with all the minority groups. We still don't know if that's going to be able to happen or whether Bulgaria will be going actually towards a sixth election, which would just be crazy. She's not completely out of the picture. Maybe there's still a way to work with her if she perhaps decides to abandon the Ger party and make some sort of agreement with the anti-corruption alliance. But right now, I think she is in quite a tight spot. Mm. What kind of a commissioner has she been? I mean, she's had the portfolio of research and innovation, uh, quite relatively high profile, certainly important in terms of EU spending, etc. How has her tenure been uh, here in Brussels? Brussels insiders have commented that her first year on the job as digital commissioner was quite bumpy. And then as the Commissioner for Innovation, Research and Culture, she's overseen Horizon Europe, which is the EU's 95.5 billion research and innovation fund. She's tried to present herself as the startup commissioner. She's attended all these tech conferences, but she's had to sort of compete for leadership in this file with Thierry Breton, the high profile French commissioner in charge of digital affairs and internal market. And then also Margaret Vestager, who's also in charge of the big tech portfolio. So quite, you know, heavyweights in Brussels. I mean, if you speak to people in Brussels, there's not something memorable that Gabrielle has really achieved during her time as commissioner for innovation. So I don't know if she really leaves Brussels with a very strong legacy. So Antoinette, in terms of her reputation, she has seen quite a a high turnover of staff. Yeah, that's right, Suzanne. 
Since the start of her 2019 mandate, she's lost 19 people, which is roughly the size of an entire cabinet. And many former staffers told us that, you know, she would regularly ask staff to run out to buy her Coca-Cola and cigarettes or, or just do errands that were completely unrelated to the job. She was obsessed with uh, control. She didn't trust anyone. She would want to be CC'd on every single email. So there was just this very toxic work culture in her cabinet. And um, how has she responded to these allegations? Well, in a response to our story, a spokesperson for Gabrielle said that she was in charge of an important and complex portfolio and she had a successful track record in this and the previous commission. Mm. And any more suggestions about or gossip or speculation about who may be in the running now to become the next Bulgarian commissioner? We still have a year left in the von der Leyen commission's mandate. So what kind of names are people talking about? Well, look, uh, Suzanne, one name has been coming up a lot in Brussels uh, and uh, among our newsroom, and that's the Bulgarian member of the European Parliament, Eva Maidel. Uh, Maidel is also a member of the centre-right Ger Party. She's a young woman. She works on tech files. But on Tuesday, Maidel categorically denied that she is in any consideration for the post because uh, there's been all this speculation. And she said that she did not want to engage with it and it was ultimately uh, inappropriate right now to talk about this when, you know, the priority is for Bulgaria to actually be able to form a government. So um, I don't think that there's any real replacement uh, in the cards right now. And frankly, that role of uh, choosing a commissioner would fall on the stable government, a new government. If, in fact, that fails to happen, it could fall to the president of the republic, Rumen Radev, who has sort of a symbolic role in Bulgaria. I mean, he's head of the Air Force, but he's not someone, uh, you know, he's not prime minister. It's a parliamentary republic. If he were to choose a commissioner, it could also be from a different party. He's from the socialists. So the truth is, we don't know right now. Yeah. And in any event, it's going to take some time. If there is a new government, well, then this commissioner would have to be proposed, would have to be screened effectively by the European Parliament. So we're looking at, at a number of months in any event. Christian, what next for Bulgaria, do you think? I mean, looking here from Brussels at this country, it was along with Romania, it's the most recent country to join the European Union. It joined back in 2007. I mean, did EU membership transform the country or, you know, a lot of our listeners would be concerned. We hear about what you're saying there about rule of law and, and problems still in the country. Uh, we hear a lot about Hungary and Poland, but also now, you know, these issues in Bulgaria. How important was joining the EU to the country? Yeah, I really hope this is some kind of cracking point uh, in Bulgaria that we've reached now, because Actually, you would get many Bulgarians now who would see the EU as part of the problem. Because when you look at the power of the mafia within the state, what they're doing, of course, is unchallenged using the EU funds. So all the funds that are coming in, the EU is not cutting these funds, even though they know there's a huge problem. That's basically fueling the mafia. It's kind of pouring gasoline onto the fire. So in many ways, in the way that the whole system was constructed, the EU has a massive responsibility in this crisis as well. 
the judicial system is a criminal organization uh, within Bulgaria, but it has consistently, through the enlargement process, which is somewhat of a joke in the Bulgarian case, given the it's been signed off as everything's going great, everything's fine, which was conspicuously not the case, and it's been unchallenged, which does make Bulgaria a kind of massive canary in the coal mine. If, a, if you cannot control a small state like Bulgaria, imagine if you have France or Italy going rogue. It just shows that the whole thing is somewhat illusory. In the nature of the corruption, yes, it involves EU funds, but it's also a big warning sign about the borders as well. This is a big border for narcotics, people smuggling, arms, and in terms of the single market standards within the EU, clearly there is no centralised European Commission interest or policing of what goes on at this border as well in terms of the trade policy or in terms of the internal market. So Bulgaria is a massive problem issue that has been absolutely unaddressed and unchallenged. And consistently, everybody's been very nice to the Bulgarians and wafted everything through. And it's clearly the case that this is being left for something, some moment to come in Bulgaria where there will be an internal cracking point. Maybe this is a bit. That would be great. If so, I don't know what's going to shake out of this. Maybe even maybe everything will just get worse after this. Who knows? But at least something has to break at some point because the pressure is not coming from the EU side. And that is causing, you know, sort of lots of disillusion, I think, about what the whole EU project is about in Bulgaria. So let's hope something comes out of this and it's shaken up in somewhere. Christian, Antonetta, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a short break now, but do stay tuned for our Decoding Brussels segment. This week, we're explaining what a rapporteur and shadow rapporteur mean. And we'll introduce you to some of the newer members of the European Parliament and hear their impressions of what it's like to be an MEP. Stay with us. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, Listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth, and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. So I'm joined again by Antoinette, who's joining us for our Decoding Brussels segment. 
This week, we're back with another piece of EU jargon, and the word of the week is rapporteur, rapporteur, and the connected phrase shadow rapporteur. Antonetta, can you explain what these terms mean? Yeah, Suzanne, it's a, it's a word that comes up a lot in the European Parliament. So what a rapporteur does when a new legislative proposal arrives, uh, that committee taking care of the legislation appoints a rapporteur or a chief lawmaker who will be charged with eventually drawing up a report and a recommendation to share with the committee and the rest of parliament. The shadow rapporteur is appointed from a different political group and still plays an important role by facilitating a compromise on the legislative proposal. Thanks, Antoinette, for that exposition. Very clear. And it leads us nicely into our final segment this week on the podcast, and that's on the European Parliament. I'm going to turn things over to our colleague Zoe Bass. Over recent weeks, she spoke to two of the Parliament's younger members who became MEPs for the first time in 2019, Damien Buslager from Germany and Kim van Sparentak from the Netherlands. They shared their impressions of becoming a parliamentarian and how they got their role. Zoe also spoke with Politico's Parliament reporter, Eddie Wax. He's going to kick us off. The interesting thing about MEPs is that, you know, people can be sent to Brussels, they can be shoved to Brussels, they can run to Brussels themselves, they can end up in Brussels. You've got people who are just starting their political careers here, you've got people who are former prime ministers, former ministers, former commissioners, so really kind of just picking up a a nice pension at the end of their careers, or you've got people who are really trying to use Brussels as a basis to relaunch a national career, or simply because they're committed to European politics and they they believe that the parliament should play a bigger role. So you've got a whole range of of different people. Some of them don't lift a finger, others are extremely motivated and, and really have a cracking team of assistants around them and do really, really serious heavy lifting when it comes to policy. In the case of Damien Buslager, his route to becoming an MEP came as a result of him co-founding a pan-European political party with the ultimate goal of creating a fully federalised Europe. And why not? The idea is that one political party, in this case Volt Europa, will have a national chapter in every European country. And if that sounds like a big ask, I think it probably is. But Volt is currently active in over 30 European countries, including non-EU member states like Switzerland and even the UK. For me, I think the choice to get politically active is uh, basically a choice of saying like, okay, I'm going to get off my sofa of campaigning and just trying to push the maximum I can for what I think is necessary and very urgent. I don't think this is an unurgent issue. I think this is the core issue of either breaking European democracy or, or developing it further. So, I, I mean, that's why we found it void, because we believe there is a certain urgency and that on the far right, they're not really stopping undermining what we're doing. So once you've founded a political party, becoming a politician seems like a very natural next step. I think the moment when I actually decided to run myself was a moment yeah, when basically the list selection assembly in Germany was just a couple of weeks to go. Um, and then I thought it's a bit like 
or like founding an ice swimming, you know, like a, a group of people that go ice swimming in association and then doing the cutting out the hole and then asking everyone else to jump in, but not actually yourself. If you, if you found a party, but then you don't want to actually be a politician. So I think that was uh, maybe the moment when I thought maybe this is, you know, I should go for it. <laughs> so you're comparing being an MEP to jumping into icy water. There are, of course, other ways to become an MEP. In the case of Dutch Green, Kim van Sparentek, a combination of activism and politics catapulted her into the position. As you said, you were number seven on the list, and then you found yourself just sort of catapulted suddenly upwards. Tell us a bit about how that happened. Well, we had election day, and then I got messages from, from heaps of people telling me uh, that they voted for me. And I was like, wow, that's That's a lot of people who voted for me. Um, and it was people from, particularly from the movement, like the feminist movement, LGBTI movement, the, the climate movement, uh, where I'd been very active in. Um, and it's when it was, it was a lot of people from those movements and also leaders from those movements that told me that they had voted for me and that they told their friends and family to vote for me. And, um, yeah, that's how, um, in the end, I had so many votes that I jumped to the third place and, uh, It was a shock. Uh, yeah, I cannot tell you any other thing. It was a shock. Good morning, dear colleagues. Once you've been elected, you become part of a vast political ecosystem involving committees, subcommittees, delegations, and, well, let's hand back to Eddie. Well, Parliament does make it a bit easier. So a section of the MEPs are referred to as office holders. So either there, there are 20 committees. So, of course, every committee has a head, uh, you know, a chair. Um, and then, of course, they've divvied out even more roles. They've got vice chairs. So, you know, that's easy to kind of locate people. And then you've got the national delegations. So each of those national delegations, the Danish socialists or the Greek, you know, center right, they've all they've all got one person who is leading that delegation. So that's another job. So you, you can kind of divide up the parliament into those different groupings. But naturally, the, some of the MEPs, the ones who you have to know most, they, they make themselves known. So it's not as if you have to rifle through a directory every single day and try and work out who is who. The most vocal MEPs are the most vocal MEPs and you, you get, you know, used to their, their obsessions and their hang-ups and their political uh, It's motives. It's that the Brexit party and Mr. Farage are, are making so much noise because they can't do it in Westminster anymore, so they have to do it here. The refuseniks have won. Blocking has been rewarded and the council by insisting on unanimity... In some ways, yeah, it's just, it's kind of, it's an, eco, it's an ecosystem that uh, is a thriving one, it's an interesting one, it's constantly changing and mutating who's up, who's down. Um, and of course, every five years, pretty much half the MEPs at least are shuffled out. So what's it like to be an MEP and what exactly do you do? Does one need legal training or qualifications? I put these questions to Kim and Damien. For those people wondering what it involves to be an MEP, does it feel like a lot of your time is spent looking at, at files and working on legislation and, and that sort of thing? Certainly, that is a core part of the job. And also, you know, the things that when I say I achieved a lot of things that I mean, I have actually put things into legislation because I was there and I was working really hard together with my team. I, one of the things that I'm that I'm really proud of uh, was I became a shadow on product safety legislation. I can tell you it's not the most sexy. It's extremely <laughs> technical. It's basically about all the types of products in Europe, how to, you know, make sure that that they're safe and, and also all the systems we have in place to check that, uh, 
etc etc and i chose to be a shadow on this file because i wanted to make sure that we start looking at gender in product safety to ensure that we're we're not just basing every safety aspect on the average male um but that we actually look like there are products that um you know have a different impact on uh, on women just because we have different body types Dankjewel, voorzitter, rapporteur, commissaris. It's a man's world. Dat geldt toch vandaag ook bij het ontwerp. You are not a lawyer, right? You didn't have legal training before you took on all of these complex tasks. Um, not at all, not at all. Uh, luckily, I learned very, very quickly, so that's good. And I just have amazing people around me. But I have to say, now I uh, I know more and more legal terms, and sometimes I can also outlawyer people. Um, so that's a very fun thing that uh, that you also pick up in the job. That uh, suddenly, suddenly you hear yourself say th- certain things. You're like, this I didn't know a year before, uh, but I sound like a lawyer. <laughs> so being an MEP gives you the opportunity to put laws in place that will literally affect the lives of citizens across the EU. A moment that stands out for me is when uh, Luis Garicano and I, who now left uh, Parliament, walked to get sushi in the middle of the pandemic during the recovery fund negotiations, and then came back and had sushi with like everyone with distance from each other in, but like discussing like the 672.5 billion euros program in the middle of like an empty Parliament. I don't know. It's a moment that just comes to my mind. You know, everyone putting their mask down to put one piece of sushi in. <laughs> Did you feel it was a moment of solidarity or just a moment of surreality, I should say? I think it was surreal in many, many ways. Yeah, first this pandemic, then second, the fact that I was negotiating this program, which for like a person with, you know, a delegation of exactly one, <laughs> um, me, <laughs> for this small movement that we had just founded a couple of years before. I mean, like all of this just doesn't make so much sense in my mind. And it's a bit like a movie, but it was cool. And that's why I think my overall impression here in this house is you can do a lot of stuff if you want to and if you put in the work and if you, I don't know, get smart on topics, there's a lot of stuff you can do. But sushi aside, MEPs are well compensated for their efforts. Back to Eddie. So the gross salary that an MEP gets is just shy of 10,000 euros per month, uh, which is obviously a lot and comes out of the, the Parliament's budget, which is part of the EU's budget. They do pay tax um, and in some countries... They do have to pay an additional national tax. But on top of on top of that, for their kind of working budget, the MEPs get um, around €25,000 per month to spend. And they give out that money as they see fit to different employees that they have. So that's the parliamentary assistants. And they often have a, a local assistant working back in their home country for them, kind of handling their constituency. But yeah, I don't think anyone is complaining that MEPs are, are too poorly paid. And yet, for some, it seems it is still not enough given the recent Qatargate scandal that engulfed the European Parliament last year and is still bubbling uncomfortably beneath the surface of parliamentary life here in Brussels. Well, I think Qatargate really shook up the Parliament and it really brought out, uh, obviously, the nastier, potentially criminal side of the Parliament, where some of these MEPs now and former MEPs are accused of basically milking the system and really selling selling the soul of the Parliament, using all the cachet and the and the kind of respect that the European Union has built up around the world, you know, the part the respect that the Parliament has built and cashing in that credibility, um, allegedly for money. Um, obviously, a lot of this needs to be proven. It all needs to be proven in a in a trial, whether it took place or not. 
But um, also Qatargate has brought out some of the real reformers of the parliament who, and it's given them a lot of oxygen and it's given them really a, a new lease of life to say, look, this parliament needs to be, if we want to be taken seriously, which we all do as MEPs, uh, then we need to really clear, clear things up in here. The reform of the European Parliament is closely linked to the bigger question of European democracy. Many Europeans feel disconnected from politics in Brussels. Damien explains why change is slow and why those who push for it are often accused of being naive. Currently, I, everyone I talk to, not everyone, but most people, be it in a foreign ministry or anywhere, when I talk about, you know, we should really improve Europe, they're like, yeah. I know, Damien, but like, let's talk about realistic things right now. So that means there is this general like resignation and also feeling of like, you, you're very naive, you know, like you're very naive. If you think, I mean, let me tell you, I have been here in politics for quite some time in this ministry, blah, blah, blah. Forget it. Yeah. It's basically, it's a very nice idea, but now let's talk about what's realistically possible or whatever. Yeah? But what that does is nothing, <laughs> literally nothing. Just again, in the run-up to this election coming up, I mean, if there was one thing that you could reform or change about Parliament that you think would make it better for the European citizens, basically, what would it be? What do you think they should do? Oof, many things. And, you know, one of the things that I find very sad is that because the debates we have that are in the plenary, they don't really feel like debates. Like we're not discussing with each other. Um, it's more statements we make about a certain topic. And in general, that is after a very, very long process where we had intense political debates. But those intense political debates where you really see the difference, like, uh, between the different political parties and, and what our priorities are, those happen behind closed doors. Uh, you know, we come out of these shadow meetings, you know, saying, well, we found an agreement, but you know, like, what were the things that different parties were blocking? What were the things different parties were fighting for? More transparency, some argue, would undermine the ability of MEPs to undertake delicate negotiations that require behind-the-scenes diplomacy and finesse. But I think it, it would um, give a better idea of what's at stake in the European Parliament and the things that, that you can actually achieve as an individual MEP and, um, and would give a better idea of, of the difference and also why it really matters to vote. Thanks to Zoe for that package on the European Parliament election, which is now just over a year away. And that's all the time we have for today. Please do follow or subscribe to EU Confidential wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. If you have ideas for guests or topics or a piece of Brussels jargon, you can get in touch with us directly by emailing us. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch. Thanks this week to Zoe Bass and Ellen Bonin and to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.